So we are in week four of the kingdom, and we have been walking through the book of Matthew. And today we're going to be in two passages. And I love these passages because honestly, everyone in the room can relate. And you may not even realize it, but everyone in the room can relate to these two passages on some level. And so I just want to ask you a question right out of the gate. Who in here, like you would say, I'm a competitive person. Like, would you raise them like kind of, kind of tall, you know, like you don't like losing, right? You like to win. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but me and my wife are incredibly competitive. Like, and it's about really things that don't matter at all. Like we could be playing cards or playing ping pong or whatever. We want to win like hundred percent, whatever it is. We always want to win. As a matter of fact, my daughter had a track meet. Uh, this week. And I'm the dad who like, as soon as I found out my daughter's about to hit the race, I literally run to the like perfect position in the field. And I find out wherever that is so that I can yell at her, go, go, go. So that she'll win. Right. Just to give her that last, you know, little punch, like go, go, go. I almost lost my voice one time before I had to preach. I was like, this is getting out of hand. Like, but I love, I love competition. I love getting after it. My wife does too. As a matter yeah, uh, I'm going to save all the stories. I'm going to stop there. Um, but yeah, I, I love that we are that way and it's super fun. Um, and, and here's the thing. Maybe you're here and you go, I'm not very competitive, Clint. But here's what I'm going to suggest to you. You may not be competitive, but it doesn't mean you don't want to win at life. Okay? You don't have to be competitive to want that or desire that. As a matter of fact, if you want to get super spiritual for a second, like nobody, uh, I would say in this room, would, wakes up every morning and says, all right, God, like teach me how to fail today, right? Like I want to lose today. Give me the L today, right? Like I, I don't think you do that. But if you did do that, you would do it so that you could win in God's eyes, Right? So no matter whether you're competitive or not, no matter how you think about it, how you frame it, everybody wants to win in the right way. I mean, Jesus talks about this. He says, hey, if you want life, you've got to, what? Lose your life. But you know what that is? That's winning. It's 100% winning. And so the question is, what does winning look like? What What does being great look like? And these are the very same questions the disciples are asking Jesus today in these passages. They're literally coming to Jesus and they're saying, hey, how do we be great in the kingdom of God? How do we win in the kingdom of God? They're asking those questions. It's the same kind of questions that we ask today. And so that's where we're headed. We're going to be jumping into Matthew chapter 18, verses 1. But I want to give you the context before we hop in, right? Jesus has been walking with the disciples, but specifically three of them, he's been spending more time with, Peter, James, and John. He actually takes them up a mountain and not the rest of the disciples, and they had the privilege to see Jesus transfigured. Literally, the glory of God takes place, and they're like, that was amazing. That was so cool. Not only that, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, pipes up, y'all have heard this before. He goes, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. So there's a lot of questions in the disciples' hearts and minds. Like, you're spending a lot of time with these three. You just said the church is going to be built on Peter. I know we have a lot of conversation about that. But the reality is he said it, and they're going, well, do I matter? Am I significant? 
where do I stand in the kingdom? And so they're like, well, Jesus, we got some questions because you're spending a lot of time on them. So there's this backdrop of who's the top dog? Who's significant in the kingdom? Who's significant in your eyes, Jesus? Many of the same questions that we talk about, right? So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's the first question they ask him. I think they're thinking, you know, I'm just putting myself in their context. Is it Peter? Is it James? Is it John? Every one of us have been here before. Like we've asked this question on some level. My daughters, I got four of them all the way from age six to age 13. Do you know what a common question I get from them? Not all of them, but throughout the life of their, you know, us raising them, they've asked this question. Hey dad, who's your favorite? Right? I love that laugh in the background. Yeah. Who's your favorite, right? Like, is it, it's, it's me, right, dad? Like, they'll literally say, it's, come on, dad, you know it's me. Like, I'm your favorite. You get it. Like, you don't have to say it. You just give me the, you know, the wink or the nod. I mean, they're just trying to pull it out. I'm like, guys, this is a dangerous conversation. You know I don't answer that, right? And they go, yeah, but it's me, so we're good. You know, like, they literally think in that way. But what are they asking? Like, think about that. What are they really saying? I want to be significant. Do I matter? And here's where it gets personal for us. If I'm not number one, if I'm not the favorite, do I matter? Right? Do I have significance if I'm not the best, if I'm not the favorite, if I don't achieve or perform at the highest level? Do I matter? Do I have significance? And don't we operate that way? I mean, kids, adults, students, don't we? I mean, think about this. It's the whole comparison game. It's rating how do I compare based off everyone else around me. We do it all the time. And you know what? A lot of it's just normal. Not necessarily wrong. Like, okay, I notice he just destroyed me in that, and that's okay. You know what I mean? Like, that's somewhat normal. But there's also a way where we internalize it, and it goes dark, and it goes bad. Matter of fact, in psychology, they call it polarized thinking. And so it's, it's, it's like this. If we aren't perfect, then we're failures automatically. That's, that's what we do. I'll give you some examples. Like here's the inner critic that goes, she's prettier, so I'm worthless. Like you see the two extremes? She's pretty. I'm not as pretty, so I'm worthless. He's more accomplished. I don't bring anything to the table. My gosh right? You ever think like that? She leads the PTA and all of her kids are always well-dressed. My life is trash, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like you just go to this extreme because you're not perfect. You haven't met the mark or whatever that mark is. Really, it's comparison to the person next to you who said they're great. Well, you did, right? He beats me in every event. I should just quit the sport, right? I I didn't make the mark for that guy, so I'm out, right? You ever think this way? I mean, aren't you, if you aren't the best, you alternatively are the worst, or you're just not significant. You don't matter. Nobody cares, and surely you don't matter, right? I mean, that's the way we think. So we constantly compare. We constantly rate ourselves. And again, I, I said some of this is normal, 
And, but I, I want to go beyond that, uh, past the normal. When we internalize it, it doesn't just damage our psyche. It can be deeply sinful, like deeply sinful, to the point where we're basing everything on how we perform, how we achieve, and we miss everyone and everything, including God. Do you know what? If you go down that hole, it goes so far you can't dig yourself out of it. It just keeps going and going because you're never going to be enough. You're never going to be perfect enough, smart enough, pretty enough, achievable enough to matter, to be significant. Somebody else has to save you out of it. Somebody else has to redeem you, right? And we know, according to the scriptures, that's Jesus. But man, we dig that hole deep and we miss Jesus. And really in this passage, what, what the disciples are missing and what we miss is his kingdom. We miss who Jesus is and we miss what kind of kingdom he's trying to build. And so we, what we end up doing is we end up building our own kingdom and we go in the hole so deep we can't get out of it. And then we wonder why we're stressed, depressed, feeling worthless, insignificant. We're just going down that rabbit trail of death. And Jesus is saying, I've got a better way. It's not what you're doing right now. And so the disciples are like, man, who's the greatest in the kingdom? They're, but watch this. This is crazy. They're all, read the room for a second. The disciples are with who? Who are they with? Jesus. He's the king of the kingdom. And you know what they're doing? They're saying, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom? They're all thinking of themselves. Who's the greatest? He's right there. His name is Jesus, right? And they're putting all of their attention, all of their concern on themselves. And Jesus is like, you totally don't get what you're doing right now. Who's the greatest? I'm right here. You've missed me and you've missed what kind of kingdom I'm building. That's the picture. And so he, they completely miss it. And Jesus is going to flip the script on them. You want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom? Let's talk about it. Verse 2. He called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's no two to three-year-olds in this room right now. But if I was to call a two or three-year-old up here, that's the picture. They say, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus says, hey, come here. This little toddler comes up, you know, all happy. And he's like, you don't know what greatness in the kingdom is? Turn and become like a little child. That's what greatness is. You want to find in the kingdom what is greatness? Become like this one. Now, there's a misconception that's preached and taught often. And it's that we are supposed to have childlike faith according to this passage. It's actually not his point. He actually tells us what his point is. He says, truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn, so that word turn is a radical change. It's actually used in Revelations. I'll give you that. It's 11.6. The word turn means it's literally holding the idea of changing water into blood. One thing becoming another. In an extra biblical book, Didache 16.3, it's a sheep turning into a wolf. That's not just like, hey, you know, a little bit of change here. That's a radical turn. Big difference. Transformation, we would call it, right? These men 
are required to become little children. Huge turn, right? And become like little children. You will never listen to this. If you don't do this, if you don't have this radical change where you're from one thing to another, guess what? You will never, and the word there is really strong, never, ever, never, ever, no, never, enter the kingdom of heaven. So he says, hey, you're talking about who's the greatest. I'm telling you, if you don't become like a little child, you're not even getting in, bro. That's what he's saying. So, I mean, it was like the disciples were like, yeah, who's the best? And he's like, ha ha, you missed it, right? Like, wake up. If you don't become like a little kid, you're not even coming in. You don't even get keys. Like, you're out. So don't miss that. So what is he talking about? He says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, verse 4. Therefore, whoever, what does he mean by becoming a child? This is what it, this is, what it is. Whoever humbles himself like this child This one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he turns to a child, which the Pharisees would have, their heads would have exploded. Be like, what are you talking about a child for? Like, we don't become like children. They don't have rights. They're insignificant. Why are you pointing to children, Jesus? But the disciples are listening, and he's like, be like a child. It's a complete reversal in society. Don't become this great intellectual like the Pharisees who do all the right stuff. No, no, no. Become like a child. What is he saying? In humility. What does a child do? What what does a child do? He's dependent on his mom and his dad. So what does humility look like? I'm going to depend on you to take care of me, to provide for me, to protect me, and I'm not going to look to myself. Children at two and three don't go, I'm going to fix everything. I need you to fix this. I need you to do this. I need you to come and show up in my life. Now, don't overread the analogy. Children are obviously prideful, right? And they fight and they clamor for number one position. Don't read into it that much. Jesus is saying their dependence in humility is the kind of dependence that we have to have. So if you're coming and asking the question, hey, how do you be great? Jesus is like, Hey, uh, don't miss it. You're not. Right? You're not. And you need to realize that you're not going to be the best because I'm the best and I'm the best thing for you. And if you'll recognize that I'm your king and that you're the child of the king, then you can have eternal life. You can have blessing and wholeness and peace and joy and happiness and all this brokenness that you feel can be Man, it can be paid for and washed away, especially eternally, but even in this life in some places and sometimes, right? This already but not yet kingdom. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. So it's not about self-esteem. Do I think more of myself or less of myself? It's, man, the disciples, who's the greatest? You're missing the greatest person in the room. It's not thinking about you. It's thinking about him. It's revolving your life around him, that Jesus is the center of the universe and you're not. And when you get there, you'll have life. You'll have life. And it'll change you. It'll change the way you think, act, and live. It'll change the way you parent the way you work, the way you play sports, it changes everything. That's the picture. 
Greatness is recognizing that you're not Jesus and that's okay. That's why you're the child of a king as opposed to the king. And this is his kingdom, right? All right, let's keep going. So we're going to jump into another passage. And it's in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. And many commentators would tell you these passages almost go hand in hand. It's like he starts a story and then he continues that story in chapter 20. It's not a one-to-one, but the, the concepts are there. The big picture is there. And so Jesus, again, what is he doing right before chapter 20? Hey, guys, I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to suffer and die. Look at what happens right after he says, hey, I'm going to suffer and die. Look at what takes place. This is chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? He he asked her. Listen to this. Promise. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Right? She's like, listen, Jesus, we know each other. And I'm going to get more into that. I'm going to tell you about who's in the room. But just picture this for a second. Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to suffer and die. And she's like, hey, so uh, cool, cool, cool. But like, hey, can you place my sons on, the, on your right and on your left in power and glory and honor in the throne, in the kingdom? And Jesus is like, <laughs> okay, like we're going to go here. All right, let's go. So I, I want you to see who's in the room though. Remember, Jesus is with her. Who's this mom? The mom is Salome. This is fascinating. You know who Salome is? Salome is Mary's sister. You know, the mother of Jesus? That's who is talking to Jesus. And so this is Jesus' aunt, which makes James and John Jesus' cousins. So what is she doing? She's coming in saying, hey, you know me, right? I'm a mom. I got these two boys. They're awesome. You took them up the mountain. Like, you love these guys, right? Don't you want to put them in power and honor right next to you in the throne? Like, isn't that what you want? Like, I want it. I know you want it. Like, they're your cousins, bro. Come on. She's leaning into her relationship. That's what she's doing. She's coming up to Jesus. Hey, just do this one thing for me. Just promise that you will do this. Put them at your right and at your left. But here's the problem. She had the wrong picture of the kingdom. What did she and all the disciples think the kingdom would be? That it would be political. She was thinking, all right, Jesus, you're about to rule and reign. You're about to be the messianic king right now. And you're going to tell everybody what's up. And I want my sons to be next to you when you do it. Because they matter. They're significant. My sons were with you and they've been with you. Man, put them on your left and on your right, right? So they're wanting this high ranking. And Jesus, I, I just can't believe it. She's being so insensitive. You know how I said, I've been saying week after week, read the room. What is she missing? She's missing who Jesus is and why he's come. He just told her, I'm gonna suffer and die. And she's like, put my sons up in power. She just misses Jesus. She misses his kingdom. A guy named Charles Q, he says it this way. The tragic irony is that at the very moment when Jesus faces humiliation, his disciples are chasing a crown. You see that? 
When Jesus is laying his life on the altar, his disciples are competing for a throne. Isn't that wild? Like, missed Jesus, missed the kingdom. He's like, I'm going to suffer and die, and they are jockeying. It literally says in Mark, they're putting her up to ask Jesus, hey, put in a good word for us. That's crazy. They completely miss Jesus and his kingdom again and again and again. I mean, don't we do this? Like, even as Christians, like you're, you're in a space and it's like, okay, I know this person's hurting. I know this situation is bad, but you just forget the person and the hurt and the situation. You just say, hey, how can I maneuver to move up? How can I climb the ladder through this fault? How can I, instead, just forget about the person and what's best for the company. How can I get to the next ladder, the next step, the next position, right? The next promotion on the team. Like we're constantly jockeying and looking, right? It doesn't mean that you don't work hard. It doesn't mean you don't look for promotions or seek those things. That's not the point. The point is, is that they have missed it. And sometimes we miss people too, because we're just trying to look out for numero number one, right? That's the picture. Let's keep going. Verse 22, Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking, he says. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? What are they confident? We are able, right? They said to him, he told them, you'll indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. I I don't know how many of you have read this passage, maybe multiple times. Whenever I read this, I'm like, why does Jesus go from this whole idea of power and honor sitting on his right and his left to a cup? Like, I know there's significance there, but I didn't realize how much significance was here. What's fascinating is, in ancient times, the kings, they all had cupbearers. And so they were these people who, they were high in, as a servant in ranking, but they were still servants. And they would come in, and they would set everything up. They would do different things. They would even make decisions on things. But whenever it was time for the king to eat and to feast, wherever it was, uh, they would pour wine for the king in a cup. And the cupbearer would come and take the cup. And before handing it to the king, they would sip the cup. And they would wait. And if that servant doesn't die, okay, then they hand the cup to the king. So they let some time pass. That was the cupbearer's job. Because the number one way to kill a king back then wasn't brute force fighting it in. It was poisoning the king. And it was usually betrayal on somebody in their courts, but nobody knew who it was, but just somebody slipping something in there so they would have a cupbearer, somebody who was willing, listen to this, to give their life in order to save the king. That's the picture. But the meaning's even deeper than that. Jesus says, right, he goes, don't you, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? This is fascinating. Jesus, what, is, what cup is he about to drink? You, many of you know this. The wrath of God. The eternal wrath that we deserve. Jesus goes, dies on a cross, and like a sponge, receives the wrath of God in our behalf. 
so that we may be forgiven, so that we may be loved, so we may be cared for, set free, made new, given new hearts, new minds, new life, right? What does Jesus do? He receives the cup of wrath of God. And do you know, there's not another person on earth that can drink that cup. There's actually no one but perfect man, God, Jesus, that can do that on our behalf. Nobody else can do it, right? And so when he says, hey, do you think you can drink my cup? They're like, we're able. And he's like, you have no idea what you're talking about. But he's even generous and nice and kind to them. Look at what he says. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup, not the cup that he's drinking specifically, not the wrath of God. What they will do is they will suffer and one of them for sure died. James is martyred, right? He's the first apostolic martyr. John is exiled to Patmos. He's suffering in prison. And many early sources say that John was boiled to death in a vat of oil. Maybe, maybe not. But it wasn't good for either one of them. They drank a cup in some form or fashion. So they weren't wrong. They just had no idea the depth of what he was saying, right? So he says, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left, it is not mine to give. This is fascinating. A little later on. Jesus is going to use the language of son of man, that he's the son of man. He's referring to Daniel chapter 7. Here's the idea. The son of man in Daniel chapter 7 is pointing forward to the co-regent to Yahweh. Yahweh is sitting on a throne and the son of man, which is Jesus, is going to sit to his right. And he says, you have no idea who you are, and what you are asking right now. You know who's going to be sitting where you're talking about? Me. And I'm the king of the kingdom. You've missed all of this. You're building this kingdom and thinking about yourself, and you've missed me all along the way. You're, again, jockeying for power, and you've missed Jesus. It's crazy. They think, listen to this, They think a lot of themselves and very little of Jesus in this moment. And he's being kind to them. Yeah, you you will drink the cup on some level. You will suffer and die. That's true. But you don't know what you're really asking. You have no clue. You ever ever do that? Like you're in a situation and you make a lot of yourself instead of the moment. That's what Jesus is saying. Guys, you're missing it. You're missing it. I'm going to be poured out the gravity of it all. Let's keep going. Verse 24, when the 10 disciples heard this, I love this. Like you're thinking like, okay, it's just James and John. Like they're jockeying for position. And then what happens? The rest of the disciples are like, what? What's happening? Like Jesus, what's this conversation over here? Because we matter too. We want to be the greatest too. Like it's definitely not going to be James and John. They shouldn't be in that position. We should be in that position. Have you heard me? Have you seen me lately? Have you seen how much I've done? Right? They're all indignant. They're like, and they're probably even madder about the fact that they're they're using this relationship, this nepotism uh, in this position to try and gain like influence and everything in their life. But either way, when the 10 disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them over and said, hey, guys, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, listen, you're followers of me. We're living out a different kind of kingdom. 
And if you try to live like the world, like the Gentiles, like people who aren't Christians, man, they all lord it over people. They all treat people bad. They're all in it for themselves. They all use their authority and their power and their relationships in ways that you shouldn't. Don't be like them. Be different. I'm calling you to a better way, a better life. And it's recognizing that you're the child of the king. You're dependent on me. That's what he's saying. All of them are seeking position and power, fighting over who will be the top. And they're missing Jesus and his kingdom. Verse 26. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, he's going to show us, okay, then what are we supposed to do, Jesus? Look at this. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus completely flips the script again. He's just like, guys, let me tell you how. Be a servant. Don't focus on yourself Focus on others. As Philippians says it this way, consider others as more important than yourself, right? As a matter of fact, as you continue in Philippians chapter two, what does Jesus do? He comes in the form of a man, right? And he doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he humbles himself as a slave, literally lays down his life, lives a perfect life we could never live and dies the death that we deserve on a cross, paying the way for us to be right with the king, right? He's the example. If you want to be great, serve others, not yourselves. If you want to be on top, be a slave to others. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Jesus is the ruler and he's the co-regent to the father. And he's saying, hey, listen, I didn't come to be served. And guess what? You shouldn't either. I came to serve you. You likewise, because you believe in me and follow in this kingdom, you go and serve likewise with me. And you know what? Because I ransomed my life, because I paid for your way to be right with the father, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to Christ. And so now you live out of that identity, out of that right, and out of that life. So now that you're a slave to me, serve. And pour out your life for the rest of eternity. Because why? Because I'm your best solution. I've made a way. If you would trust me that you would pour out your life and not try to hold on to your life, you will find life. You'll have hope and forgiveness and joy in everything that you seek for. So two things. You are the child of a king and you absolutely need him. And number two, man, don't serve yourself, serve others. Consider others. I, I think of, um, there's a guy when I first showed up here, and there was several, by the way, that showed up to our house to help us move in. But there was one in particular, um, he stayed really long, got there really early, uh, put up curtains, put in doorknobs, literally destroyed one of my walls because he just, I don't know, he got off the rails and just started doing stuff. And like my wall got destroyed. Uh, it's still there today, which is awesome. Um, but anyways, uh, he came and just, man, just served and served and served. Older guy. And I had no idea who he was. I was new to everything. And we left and uh, I saw him again and he just continued to be that way. And then I realized, oh my gosh. Like, this guy's kind of a big deal. He owns a ton of companies, 
uh, does a lot of incredible things for the community. And he was on over there. I just remember picturing him on his hands and knees, sweating it out, making jokes. Man, I, any, anything you need, you should let me know. And just the juxtaposition of his life, I just remember leaving going like, this guy gets it. He's not building his own kingdom. He's not jockeying for position. He's just saying, man, I'm here to serve. I'm here to love. I'm here to be like Jesus. And so with that in mind, man, my hope and my prayer is that as we continue to look at the kingdom, that you would see Jesus for who he truly is and his kingdom for what it really is. And that we would live out of that life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that we wouldn't miss you, Jesus, and that we wouldn't try and build a different kingdom, but that we would be a child of the king and that we would consider others as more important than ourselves. God, you're so good and gracious through your son. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.